All right, so 1 Timothy 3, we're talking about meeting the needs of the, the local church. So um, I guess since it's maybe a donut morning, I'll, I'll ask you this uh, question. I have one that was a little bit more serious, but um, so uh, think, I want you to think, what is the um, best service that you've ever had? Or if you want to think like there was somebody who was, uh, you know, in a position of, service to you, whether it was like at a restaurant or a hotel, something like that, or you can think even beyond that, um, that kind of went above and beyond. Uh, so it could be something recent or something that has just stuck with you for years. Um, anyone think about that? What they do? seated me and then put it in my lap, and I have never had that done before, and I don't need it, but yeah. it was interesting. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well and it's, what's that? You got well tipped. <laughs> <You> got well <laughs> tipped. <laughs> That's all I got a cruise, how On a cruise, yeah. It's always interesting when you go on a cruise with somebody else, or do, or you're at a, I think when where we got married, uh, same thing they did at their hotel rooms, and people would be like, "Man, our towel, you know, there was this big lobster or whatever," and it was like, "We got nothing, we got rolls." <laughs> so, well, most recently, we had uh, we stopped up near Jasper at a barbecue place, and from the time we walked in the door until the time we left, everyone there was acting like they were glad you were. Yeah. <laughs> you did eat well. I was at that Shepherds Conference, but I missed that talk because I had to go late. But speaking of that, that was uh, the Shepherds Conference itself was... Uh, I was blown away by, it was, you know, just a lot of people in the church had taken off to be hospitable, and it was just like, you know, like you took your day off to, like, serve, uh, and, and that really stuck with me, uh, now that you mention it, so. And he wasn't even, he was in the pinch heavy for, he knows me who was in the city. That's true, that's true, so, yeah, I, I do, I do remember that talk, that was, I've, I've listened to it since then, so. Anything else? Yeah. When we travel, I always get a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And when we, last time we traveled, a guy picked us up, picked me up from the door of the plane and delivered me to the door of our rental car. I mean, all the way through baggage, waited through the line to get our car, and then to the door of the car. And I thought that was above and beyond. He could have dumped us at the rental car place and said, bye-bye. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice.
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and now we've gotten to, uh, like, I guess, you know, we've gotten to the point where now tipping is kind of like... Um, yeah, well, it's you got more of that, and it was. I read an article recently. It's like, yes, you are being asked to tip more. Where like everywhere you go, it's like tip, and you're like, well, not yeah, but even when you pay, yeah, when you pay with a credit card, it's like tip, and you're like, you got to do the uh, either no tip or custom tip, you know. So. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> now, now that you mention it, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, we have gotten a little bit off subject, although I did bring it up, you know, a little bit about a little bit about tipping. Uh, oh, that stuck to me when we were, you know, we were we were just down at a restaurant and uh, at Jekyll, and the guy had. I don't know. Comped. I think I don't know if he was because he was late, but it was funny because he we were about to pray and he like joined in our prayer and it was like I don't know. It was kind of nice. And then he had like you know the guys that got a full rack of rib. He's like I only charge you for a half. He didn't he didn't charge me with the sweet tea. He said don't block my blessing. Don't block my blessing. <laughs> Which I never heard that term before. So but I you know it stuck with me. I was like well I'm gonna tip extra on top of the you know tip that was included. So. Anyway, well, uh, we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about what that looks like um, and what we're going to talk about this morning. Not necessarily tipping, although we could get there, but um, we'll, we'll see. I've got way more than I intend to cover today, so we'll see if it spills over into another time, but we'll just see how, how it goes this morning. So last time we got 1 Timothy uh, 3, kind of part 3 was, was uh, what we were looking at, and, and we saw the overseers. In the church were men who could refute error and protect the health of the church. So their characteristics, as kind of dictated and directed by Paul, set a high bar, you know, because these men were not only models for those, you know, in the church, but also likely lightning rods for controversy. Um, and so again, if we look at uh, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. I, I've really been wrestling over just kind of this, this, this idea of what this looks like. And part of it I kind of you know, talked about last week was, um, you know, a lot of what we understand about, about elders and what we understand about different roles in the church are just kind of like what we, you know, have experienced um, so what does it look like biblically? Um, cause then even sometimes when you say like, well, is it biblically, is it biblical or is it not biblical? And just because something is not biblical doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. And so I just want us to, you know, I don't know if we'll, we'll enter in fully into that, but there are some things that I have that I've just kind of been thinking about, but even the way that like the, the you know, scripture translates this idea of, of an overseer, um, where it says aspires to the office of overseer. I mean, that, that term office is not even in there. Um, 
So really, it's whoever aspires to be an overseer. So when you kind of when you read scripture and you see like the office of overseer, if somebody's putting in there this idea that it's like a position. And when you have an office, right, what do we understand about an office? It might be someone who runs for an office, um, holds a seat, an office, uh, you know, sits in an office, those types of things. So what does that look like? And what is, what is the idea of, of, you know, an overseer? And often we've said that complements with the idea of an elder. Um, how are those understood? So whoever aspires to be an overseer, he desires a good deed, um, is, is a good translation, I guess, to kind of even think about that. And I want us to think, like, an overseer would be kind of probably the godly, holy men within the church. Um, that, one, if you aspire to be somebody who is in that position that people look to for wisdom, guidance, to refute error, um, these are the qualifications, these are characteristics of somebody who should be in that role. And if somebody, you know, this is not just for... This is for Timothy to understand who are the people that he should put in office, right? or he should, he should put in, in that place as when he moves on. You guys are kind of the overseers. But what does that look like? Um, and, and this will foster a little bit more kind of questions that pop up when we start thinking about specifics about this, you know, this role. Um, but this is kind of the person that it's going to aspire to. Plus, again, also being one who is going to refute error, being able to teach, um, these are the characteristics of someone who should be in that role. So as a church, not just for Timothy, but as a church as well, these are kind of characteristics of somebody um, that should be in kind of that leadership role that you should aspire to, that you should look up to. So if anyone, no matter what their age, aspires to that, that's a good thing because this is what the characteristics are of someone who fits that role. And so... <clears throat> We've talked about uh, the elders and overseers, and so we'll look at just getting those characteristics real quick. I'll just read them, and then that sets us up for the second half of what, what Paul is going to get to. So he says, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, uh, he desires a good deed or a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Remember, you know, when we think about all the lists of things, like he spends the most time and energy, right, talking about managing a household well, because that is really the purpose and the role of the overseers, to manage the church, having a similar role as the father of a home, as the fathers within the church. And so, verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You know, again, as he gets kind of further onto these lists, he explains the reasons why, you know, um, an overseer uh, must have these certain characteristics and qualifications. And so we're moving on from there, although we'll come back to this, this idea of overseer in just a second, um, or not just a second, but later on, um, perhaps maybe even next time. Uh, but we continue on verse 8, where Paul says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, 
not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as, a de- as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So we get to kind of this new term, this term deacons. And so now it's, it's, we want to understand who a deacon is or what a deacon should be. And we see that the idea is a deacon is a server. Um, Sometimes described as somebody who waits tables, but this idea is really in the position of service. Uh, so one who works for someone else and acts as an intermediary. But you can think of like why waiting tables, right? The intermediary between somebody who's eating the food and somebody who's making the food. Um, when I asked you kind of if you thought someone who kind of gave good service, they're all intermediaries for you between one uh, task to another, one destination to another. And so this idea of someone who is in service is what we kind of see here in Scripture. Sometimes this term can be translated as deacon. Sometimes it can be translated as minister. And then sometimes it's translated as servant. So in Matthew twenty twenty six. Jesus says, it shall not be so among you, meaning the Gentiles who lord it over themselves, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant, must be your deacon. And it comes from a word diakonos, which is similar to what this term deacon is. In Romans 13, uh, 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror for good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant, diakonos, for your good. That's talking about those that are in government, has this term for who uh, a servant is. Kind of, you know, again, the leadership even in government are those who are acting as servants of God for your good by, um, you know, uh, being in a position of authority for right and wrong, such as the police would act within our, uh, within our government. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen. no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So if no one's, uh, so it is no surprise if his servants or deacons also disguise themselves as servants or deacons of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. 1 Corinthians 3, 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants or deacons through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Even Romans 16, 1 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant or a deacon of the church at Sencrie. And so, and then, then uh, Paul says in Philippians 1, 1, we already looked at this verse, but Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So you've got this kind of like, again, roles and people that were within the church, within kind of, you know, who serves the church. We have this idea that deacons are those that are in the church. Paul, 
even describes himself in this way. In Colossians 1, he says, You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I, Paul, have become a minister or a deacon. And so now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking, of which I became a minister or a deacon according to the stewardship from God that was given to me. And so we'll look at that, that verse a little bit later when we look at something about who these deacons are. So when we understand this, this term, like even for deacons, right, you have like t- uh, Paul talking to Timothy about overseers and deacons, and I think sometimes, and I I don't think it's necessarily wrong, um, but I think maybe it's uh, kind of um, restrained our thinking that people fit in a certain role, and that's it. Paul, again, would describe himself as an overseer. He would also describe himself as a deacon, like not that they're mutually exclusive of one another, because I think, again, the role of what someone is fulfilling, and we'll talk about this kind of to sum it up, um, we want to just kind of have framed in our minds what this looks like. So when we even think about deacons, what do deacons look like and who are they? And even when we think like within our own church, have we, are there people that we've labeled as deacons? Should we label people as de- deacons? So is la- are labels helpful? Um, but Paul is again writing to Timothy using this term deacon, and so we want to understand because he has qualifications for those that are deacons or servants within the church. And so the first one he says is that they are dignified. And so dignified is worthy of special respect applied to divine beings. It's the same word, and we've heard this again term before, that describes an overseer that manages his household with dignity. That's right. When the kids look at the, the, the father, that dignity and how they see the father is applied similarly to how an overseer should manage his household, but it's the same way that a deacon should be looked at um, when others see them, right? And so this is really a big word that kind of ups the character of those who serve. You know, some churches kind of say like, well, if you want to serve, you can just serve, you know, without any sort of qualifications. Again, what does that look like? What does that mean? Um, And should there be some sort of qualifications? Meaning, if you're going to be a greeter, you know, greeting people when they, when they come in through the door, do they have to have the high qualifications of a deacon, of a servant? Is that for anybody who serves, or is this something, somebody who's different? Just kind of like get us thinking about that. But in any case, it's kind of like we're starting off with the first kind of term that he talks about is dignified, right? Again, someone who's worthy of a special honor, special effect. Sometimes you think of, again, how an officer uh, towards those who are the, to his subordinates should be looked at as somebody who has dignified. Not double-tongued is the next term that we see. So that's somebody who is a two-talker, um, or really somebody who is, you know, deceivious. Uh, so they, again, their words are consistent. The things that they say, they, they do. Um, but they're not saying one thing to one group and something else to another group. They are who they are, and they say what they say. Again, so how they, how they appear um, in their manner, and then even in their speech, 
something that's described about them. And that seems kind of like something that could be easily looked at. Like, yeah, that person says that, you know, one thing, but then does something else or says something else to somebody else. That shouldn't be so for somebody who is a deacon or a servant. The third one is not addicted to much wine. And we've talked about this with an overseer and what that looks like. Um, really, the term is not preoccupied with lots of wine. Uh, I would say it's similar to, you know, although it's not the same, but similar to not being a drunkard. You remember we looked at that term, a whiner, somebody who's, that's what they're known for. And so um, I've heard some people say, well, that means that deacons are allowed to drink and, and overseers or elders aren't. You know, I don't think there's kind of necessarily a distinguishing factor along that. But I think it's, it's similar terms where one is clear, yeah, that, that person gets drunk. They're obviously disqualified as, as an elder or overseer. Um, and somebody who is a, a deacon should not be known for that. They're preoccupied with wine or drink or drugs. And we've kind of made that extrapolation um, last time. Next one is not greedy for gain. So not fond of shameful gain is really you know how we could think about that. Remember the overseer we looked at was a someone, um, the, the term was not a lover of silver, um, but we see somebody who's not a greedy for gain. Interestingly, Titus, or Paul's letter to Titus, uses the same description for somebody who is an overseer. And in Paul's letter to Titus, he doesn't talk about deacons or servants the way that Paul talks to Timothy about. And so it's, you know, again, the information that we have, we're just kind of extrapolating from little bits and pieces, but largely from this one letter um, that Paul writes. So who are these people? What do they look like? And how is it, again, disseminated within the church? But the same description, not greedy for gain, Paul said an elder or an overseer should not, ha- not be greedy for gain in the same way. And so we talked about why that was, so again, why was that important? Someone who's not greedy for gain or a lover of silver. And we talked about it for an overseer, but you could probably like understand why the same would be for someone who serves within the church. Okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because it could be, like, in two, two, two senses, right? The, the church is not a business, so it's not, you know, we're not out to look for a profit. Um, so that could be one aspect of it. But, yeah, more importantly, right, is the people that are in positions of, you know, handling money. I mean, we say, like, well, would it, would it have been like that even uh, in Jesus' day? But what was the accusation? What's that? Yeah, so who is, who is the treasurer for Jesus? Yeah. And so, I mean, you think like, you know, with, even, within, even within that, they understood corruptness and somebody who, who could be, you know, out for themselves who also chose Judas, right? Yeah. Do you think you can make the differentiation that overseers and 
Yeah. Okay, so now this is where you're getting into like the way that we pragmatically like think through things. So I'll, I'll answer your question now in small part, and I don't know if I mean we're not going to flesh it out fully, but there's things that I want us to kind of consider, right? My understanding of how I would view elders and overseers, because then the then it begs questions. Well, like, well, how do you, how does how do you go about doing that? Are the elders and overseers are those that shepherd the church, look out for the church. Um, if there are questions about how, you know, decisions that should be made, elders should be the ones who um, answer those questions, like protection, right? Hey, I've, you know, I've heard this person's kind of saying these things. We're going to teach, you know, go to that person and, and talk to that person, you know, and, and primarily the teachers within the church, and so giving kind of direction within that. The deacons are the doers, and so the things that, like the people that function and get things done within the church. And we'll look at like a specific example. And we can look at it now. Um, because uh, if you go to Acts chapter 6. Now, these guys are not described as deacons. But it's kind of like, well, what's the closest that we could see of somebody kind of like doing things within a church, right? And we've already looked at this a little, you know, slightly. But if you look at Acts chapter 6. It's like, were these guys functioning in this role? It might be the closest we see. But at this time, we don't see elders as a function or a group or institution within the church because who do we have early on? We have the apostles, and everyone's in Jerusalem. And so who are you going to look to? You're going to look to the apostles. As more of the apostles start going out, right? Apostles, right, that term, you guys remember that term? I've repeated it a hundred times, but what does that term apostle mean? Sent one, right? So somebody who is who is sent out is... Um, you know, eventually, like they were supposed to go out and spread the gospel and establish churches and those things. So that meant that the apostles would no longer be there. So who would be left? It would be those that you know could oversee the church, the elders. So we've looked at this verse, uh, chapter one, uh, six, verse one in Acts. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, those twelve are the apostles, and it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, and we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenius and Nicolaus, proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So you kind of like say, I mean, they aren't described as deacons, but what they're doing is they're fulfilling kind of a role of serving the church or serving, you know, getting something accomplished within the church while the apostles are devoting themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Even when people, again, were laying money at the, the apostles' feet, they're like, we really, don't want to be, we really don't want to be doing this. We want to be the ones who, again, are almost you know, the spiritual figureheads for the church, where the deacons are kind of doing the things in the church. But it gets kind of tricky, right? Because we live in a, you know, we live in a 
society, that structure and order and roles and we live in a, a government where we have to, you know, our church is a nonprofit and, you know, s- set up in a particular way and we have to have bylaws that are, you know, set in through the state. Um, and so you have like all these organizational things that kind of like, I wouldn't say muddy the waters, but they just kind of like make it where certain people have certain roles. I just want us to understand like largely what this may look like. Were these guys looked at as deacons? I mean, they were those that were served, you know, who served the church. Was there actually an office of those that like, oh, those guys over there, you know, those are the deacons. Um, or was it just more like those who want to be in a service role within the church? These are people who, you know, like your characteristic of what you're, you know, how you should act and how you should, you know, if you're going to distribute the money, right, and the food that's coming in to the widows, we want people who are men and women of good character to be able to do that. So does it mean like there's somebody who makes that determination? Maybe. And we'll talk about that in, in just a little bit. So kind of taking aside, when you see this, you know, again, they must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Um, you know, these are kind of, again, qualities, like big qualities that should just describe uh, you know, all people within the church, but even more so those that are going to be people who function in a role where they're doing things. I mean, anybody who does anything within our church, like there is some sort of role, uh, and we would understand that hopefully they would be um, of somebody of good character, uh, whether they're serving coffee or where they're serving the Lord's table, um, you know. But again, what does that look like? More details on that in just a minute. Um, Continuing on, he says that they all must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So I want you to turn to Colossians 1. And we'll look at this. I know we're looking at big portions of Scripture kind kind of around, but it's interesting how several of these things kind of pull together with even what Paul is talking about when he's writing to Timothy, it's at a different time that he's, he's writing Colossians and Ephesians. And we'll see similarities between Colossians and Ephesians. But in uh, Colossians 1.24, and I just read some of these verses um, about, you know, who Paul was. But we'll look a little bit deeper as we continue on. Paul says in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister, that word is deacon, according to the stewardship, it's a house manager, similar word where somebody who must, an elder or overseer must manage his house well. So he's using similar language right here, even when he's going to talk about what he's just about to talk about in just a second. But he's, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the uh, word of God fully known. The word of God fully known, verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what does it seem that this mystery is? Okay, the gospel, but even more so, what is this gospel, like more so, what is this mystery? So there's, there's one aspect of, right, that, that um, 
the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for all ages is now revealed. Yes, that is the gospel. But even more so, he says, this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you've got salvation of Jesus Christ. In addition, not only salvation through Jesus Christ, but you have also this indwelling of Christ's spirit within you is just something like, well, how does that work? He says it's this mystery that's now been revealed. Remember the, in the Old Testament, we've looked at it when the Old Covenant talked about the New Covenant. Or sorry, when, the, when they were talking about the New Covenant, that they would say like, I, you know, God's, the Lord says, I will place my spirit within you. And people are probably like, what, is, what does that mean? <laughs> and so this is that mystery that's being revealed, it's Christ's spirit is within you. It's that your hope of salvation proclaimed through the gospel. Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy and that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who've not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." And then I say this, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And I think kind of in that package, you see this idea, right, that there is this mystery of Christ. And some people will come about and say, you know, the mystery is not salvation through Christ. It's, it's believing in Christ, yes, but it's also what you need to do or some other form of the gospel and the things that we've, we've kind of looked at in different aspects of these are the things like, yes, believing is good, but doing is even better, right? But that's the mystery of, is the fact that you don't need to do anything better because Christ is within you. And if you were walking in the spirit, then you will be more like Christ. And there's this aspect of not just being more like Christ on this individual walk in yourself. It's this aspect of being knit together with others in the body of Christ. That this journey is together because that is Christ's church, right? That's like this whole like paragraph right here is kind of sprinkled bits and pieces. Now, how is that going to happen, right? When people come in and start teaching a false gospel, well, Paul later says, like, functionally, like, there should be people around who refute that false gospel. And there are things that, because just people are selfish and sinful, there are people that should really be ministering and serving others in Christ. Like, we should all just do that on our own, but we're not going to. <laughs> you know, be, why? Because things don't always happen organically. Uh, this was going to be my initial question. Should things happen organically or structurally, right? But, like... As much as we'd hope, right, as much as we'd hope, it's kind of like one of those big things, you know, and I'm guilty of it as well. Like, you know, like, you know, I'll just say like a, for instance, somebody might be saying like, you know, it's been hard kind of like meeting people in the church, right? Well, have you asked anybody to dinner or have you like set something? Have you asked them out for a play date? You know, it's like, like, are there practical things that you've done? Or are you just hoping like you're going to strike up a conversation with somebody and magically like connect with them? Like, yes, that sometimes happens. And maybe you've had friends that that's happened with, like you're on the playground and all of a sudden you're swinging on swings and like, you, like your best friend was next to you. 
But how many people did you swing next to that they just weren't your best friend, right? So sometimes, like, in our minds, we want things just to happen, but organically things won't happen that way. And that's why Timothy is saying there needs to be people within the church that kind of, like, has that as their, as their role um, to be thinking along those lines. So if you're an elder, if you're an overseer, um, you have these qualifications, but that's kind of should be like your MO. If, if you're an elder and overseer who isn't looking out for the protection of the church, then you're just fulfilling some role. If you're a deacon who doesn't serve others and do the ministry of the church, well, like that's not what a deacon is by virtue of a deacon's a servant. So if you're not serving, then you're just in a role because you makes you feel important. And same thing with an elder overseer. You're an overseer. And if you're not overseeing, then you're just doing, you're just in a role or function or position of the church, probably for how it makes you feel. Again, that's big and broad, but that's kind of like, you know, things that we should, we should be thinking about and understanding, um, when we talk about these, these roles. What's that? For what? For what? In what way? In all ways. Those layers, all the layers of responsibility, layers of authority. You ever do a wiring diagram, it sure lines up. But that makes it easy. And the one thing I want to say is that the hard part, and this is like the sticking point of the church, is when sometimes we push ourselves to like do things that are easier, um, it it removes us from what is better. Uh, you know, it happens, it happens in business. It happens in business. Um, I'll say, how did, we, how did the Catholic Church get to a one, one person overseeing all of the church, the Pope, right? That was, the, that, was, that was a part of how things uh, kind of came about. We'll talk about that in, uh, if we get to it at the end of this in just a second. Just for us to understand, right, what should be a healthy view of, you know, these roles within the church. As far as should it be a good business model, it might work well in, in business, all businesses, I don't know. You know, it's not something I have, I've thought through. Um, but there are some places where, you know, having one CEO is, you know, is uh, helpful for certain businesses because they can make decisions easily instead of going to a board or a group or even the whole workforce and saying, what do you guys want to do? But, that might be sometimes like a benefit for how a business should operate. So anyway, but we don't want to get off track as far as business. Uh, we want to think, you know, mainly for the church. Maybe that'll be a, a, a side study that we do. Um, so those that are hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, right? That mystery of faith, they like they need to firmly hold to what this mystery is. That yes, it's the gospel, and the gospel is within you. Um, and that they have no problems with that, right? So maybe where the difference is between those who serve and those who oversee or those who can oversee and teach where those who serve just are firmly believe in the mission of the church, right? With a clear conscience. If you have any issues, and again, these aren't like side doctrines. This is like the big thing of like the big parts of the gospel of who those that will be serving within the church. Because if you're serving within the church, you're looked at as some sort of role or leadership within the church in some capacity. Again, whether it's leading, uh, you know, the distribution of, of food or you're leading those, you know, children or leading adults or whatever that looks like. There's different types. And so that's, again, should be of of a clear conscience. 
But before that, Paul says that they must be tested first, which means that there needs to be some sort of examination. Paul uses the same, the same terminology in 2 Corinthians 13.5 where he says, examine yourselves. He's telling the Corinthians um, to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. That's that same ter- terminology, same word. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? I mean, to a whole other church, a whole other thing where we talked about what the mystery of Christ is. He's like, remember, Christ is in you. So if you have any concerns like, how am I going to accomplish this? How am I going to do whatever? Um, Christ is in you and Christ will direct you as long as you're faithful. Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you'll find out that you have not failed the test. Verse 7, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but you may do what is right, though we may, we may seem to have failed. And there's a whole lot that kind of goes into that. But Paul's saying, test yourselves. He says these deacons should be tested first. Meaning, um, Similarly to an overseer, there shouldn't be a, a recent convert, but there should be some tests. But in that same way, how can you, how can they be tested, right? Unless they have an opportunity to serve in some capacity. And then uh, next, he says, let them serve if they prove themselves blameless. So let them serve as deacons or serve as servants. It's the same word to serve and to be a servant. Um, if they prove themselves blameless. So blameless, that term is actually after being tested. So let them serve as servants after they have been, after they have proven worthy through their testing. And Titus uses the same word for an overseer when he says that they must be above reproach. That's actually how it's translated in Titus's version. In our version, it's a different word that's used. But again, translations can be sticky. They're trying their, you're trying their best to kind of communicate something. But sometimes it almost over-communicates or constrains. And so that's kind of the idea. So if they've served in some capacity and they have proven themselves, then let them be in a role where they can act as a servant or a minister of whatever it is within the church. And then he kind of turns a little bit and he says, their wives, likewise, must be dignified. And it's kind of interesting that we see that, you know, with uh, the deacons, with the servants, right, that uh, they ta- you know, Paul talks about, um, you know, their wives. And it could be something with age uh, where... An elder or, you know, an overseer is typically an elder. Remember that term is for someone who's older and it doesn't necessarily need to be someone who's older. But those that are older uh, might at that stage in their life might not have a wife um, where a deacon might be a servant, might be a younger man. So who has a wife? So we could always like because of silence say, well, why don't they have the same qualifications for the wives? But that's a kind of good way to maybe think about why that's possible. Um, but uh it's the same word again, the same word for dignified is the same word that was for overseers running their house with dignity and the same word that deacons, the first word that we saw for deacons must be dignified. So their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers. That word is diabolos, which is a word for the devil. 
Remember where we get that word for the devil? What's the, another Satan? Do you guys remember what that means? Accuser, yes. It's kind of the same kind of words that's just kind of being interchanged there. Is not slanderer, so not, so not you could say she's not a devil, um, but more so the idea of like the accuser, you know, kind of talking about others. And so that's, that's kind of, he talks later about um, the older women, uh, which are actually female elders, but we'll maybe talk about that another time. Same word there, but older women, you know, should not be gossips. And so, um, and specifically for widows, uh, he says should be sober minded, similar, right? Uh, that we saw for um, elders when we talked about the idea of sober-minded is temperate or level-headed, um, both applied in regards to alcohol, but also in regards to thinking, and more so we're talking about that and the application of thinking, because he does say you can't be, you shouldn't be a drunkard, and so while those may be together, they might also be separate ideas, and uh, what that looked like. And then, faithful in all things. Faithful in all things, so Paul describes the deacon or servant's wife as faithful in all things. That's the same word that Paul tells Titus when he talks about an overseer. And we looked at just kind of the verbiage, but didn't really examine it too, you know, too deeply. That an overseer, when he talks about, you know, in Timothy, over managing his household well, he says that in Titus, right, that they need to be, um, I think, free from debauchery or not known for debauchery. I can't remember the other word. But he also says they need to be believers. But really that word believers is faithful. And this is how it's, how it's uh, translated here. Faithful in all things. So they need to be faithful. Some would say, well, if a person's child is not a believer, can they be an elder according to Titus? And that, you know, we, but we bring with, within our understanding who, what a believer is. A believer is also someone who's faithful can you be faithful to your parents, and meaning obedient to your parents, but not believe what they believe? Meaning, are you under, the way it says in Timothy, like you are under, in, you're submissive to your parents. And so how that plays out, like if, you know, and again, some churches kind of make certain inferences based on some of those things of what that may look like. So if they're not a believer, and that's kind of hard, right? Um, how many little children are believers? But how many little children could be faithful to their parents without having understanding of the gospel? So you could apply it in that way. It gets a little stickier when they become, you know, maybe a, an age of accountability, if you want to use that term, um, what that looks like. But he's saying that's what uh, a wife should be as well, and so faithful in all things. Again, not just her husband, as Paul would say in Ephesians. We looked at that as submissive, um, but faithful in all things in, in accordance to uh, the gospel. Same thing, next he says, husband of one wife, um, managing his household, so same as the overseer, uh, same descriptors. And then he kind of has these two things that he, he says, if they serve well, again, using that kind of same terminology earlier as being tested, if they serve as a servant, uh, rightly, or if they serve as a servant well, then two things will be achieved. What are those two ch- things? What's the first thing that he says? What's that? They gain a good standing for themselves. And so, why do you think Paul says that?
Well, it's true. I mean, in some sense, like we don't know. He doesn't have a side commentary, like you know. Yeah, no, no. Well, I would say I don't know for sure, but you know, I think in some sense, right? There is, there is a, you know, is there a tendency to serve um, begrudgingly? Yeah, and why would somebody serve begrudgingly? Okay, they could they could be to gain recognition, but if you think like someone, you know, went in for it with all the right motives and after a period of time, you know, they're just serving. Okay, it could be that. It could be they felt guilted into it. It could be like, you know, um, you know, what what's the point of me serving, right? You know, it could be almost like, you know, yes, uh, you know, feeding these widows is a great thing, but you're like you know, after a year of serving, it's like this, the, the work never stops. It's almost like, you know, that question of why do, uh, this is such a random thing, why do postmen go postal? You know, that term postal, right, uh, was the idea that I've heard it applied is that the mail never stops. It's like almost a job that never gets completed, you know. It's a monotonous job day in and day out. Is like when is there like, We've completed this project. We've built this building. We've, you know, served these customers. It's like I deliver mail and I deliver mail and I deliver mail. I tear down a setup, set right? <laughs> I tear down a setup, right? And what are you, what are you waiting to achieve? Like the Holy Land will be a building of our own that is already set up, <laughs> right? And and so I think in some sense it's like through through all of that, right? You know, you're achieving this discipline, right? So the first thing is there is a good standing um, for yourself. And I think it's the idea that eventually, you know, an overseer, this noble task, is something that could be there awaiting you. So there's one, like, you're actually, like, you know, doing this is not just, you know, like, keep, keep at it. Keep at it. But then the second one, what does he say? Okay. Yeah, so good confidence in the faith. Why do you think that would be true by serving? Yeah, more. Uh, yeah, I want to be careful how you say that. Our more, our confidence in our standing before God. What do you mean? Yeah, yeah, no, and I think I think that's important to say. Yeah, that confidence because uh, it's almost you know this idea of assurance. Um, you know, we could say, well, you don't have any greater assurance, but you do have this confidence, right, of your salvation and and. 
Yeah, and you, 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 yes, and so I think there's kind of all of that. And serving in the church, if you kind of just step back and look like the faithfulness of God, you know, can be seen in the things that are being accomplished within the church. Even though your role may seem, you know, um, for whatever reason, and I don't know what it looked like, you know, all the things that were serving within the church, the only thing that, you know, could pull back is the feeding of the widows, but how did it look in the early church? Uh, there's kind of some of those things. Yeah, no, I definitely think that could be something inferred. I haven't, I haven't made that application, but yeah, I could, I mean, specifically, yeah, his, his experience and what he's thinking about and talking about here. Um, I think the bigger picture, like Christ said, his father says, it's not my will, but your will. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's like, it's for the church, it's not for myself. I'm serving the body for Christ. I mean, it's, 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 an, it's a, never accepted himself for a higher purpose than himself. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we've got kind of, we kind of have all of that, that he kind of rounds that out, right? Again, a servant who serves well, not only gains good standing for themselves, but they have a confidence in the faith. Um, all right, we'll pause, we'll pause there. We only have a few more verses, and I've already kind of touched on some of the things that we'll talk about. We'll pull this together, and then even maybe think about how we're going to do, uh, come together next time. So I don't have a whole lot to say, although I feel like that comes up. It comes out a lot, so I don't really feel like I'm going to pull out a whole bunch more stuff. But I do, I did have kind of some of the things that I want us to look at. Because we think, again, of overseers and deacons as maybe kind of two roles that kind of have played out. But there are some other roles within the church um, that Paul talks about in other verses. And I just wanted to quickly kind of think about those. And again, how we think about um, what it looks like of those that are serving the church and, and in the ways that people can serve within the church as maybe an application that we see here. So I have a little bit to touch on there and, uh, and wrap it up after, because we don't, we don't have service next week, right? Or we don't have Sunday school next week. Um, so what's that? That's true. That's true. We could talk about business and uh, application of overseers and deacons in the church. So, any any final questions or thoughts? Yes. We don't have an official role of deacons within this church. Uh, I know Tim. We're working, on working on it. Okay. <laughs> I was just say I've heard. I've talked to different people who've said, "Yeah, we're, you know." So whatever that looks. Working like. on it for twenty five years, but I promise you, we are working on it. Yeah. I think if you're an overseer, you got to be able to teach and explain. If you're not, you can definitely teach because 
one of those guys on that list of the only thing, you know, people, the go-to passage, which doesn't even say deacons, but kind of says it, was Stephen. And what happens in the next chapter? He, like, scorches the elders. Almost, you know, right? He, they stone him because of that. I wouldn't say, anyone would say that he's a bad, because he kept refuting everybody. Like, they would come and he would talk, and they kept refuting the Hellenists uh, that would come against him. And so they're like, this guy... We don't know what to say. And so the only thing they could respond with was to stone him. Colossians reference should be the one we should have sympathy for missionaries. Because it really explains how difficult their task is. The mystery. The mystery. Yeah, I mean, the gospel is, is a challenging thing. But again, it's, it's the hope of what we, what we live in, as Paul would say. So a mystery, but a mystery worth explaining. So, All right, we'll end there. And maybe some of these things we'll kind of touch on. Cause